You all can be seated. I got to give you a heads up this morning. We're on Wednesday of the Passion Week, and Jesus is dealing with two more tough questions thrown his way, and there is a lot of good stuff in here, and I'm going to aim to keep it in a brief enough package, but I'm also mindful of how one man defined an optimist. He said an optimist is someone who, when the preacher says finally or in closing, the optimist is the one who begins to gather his things. Because <laughs> you never really know, do you? But we're going to aim for it, and I promise you it will be worth it because we're listening to the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he answers some, some poignant questions. They're questions meant to trap him and make him look like a fool, but his answers have much to teach us. And I think as we look at his answers, part of what he's going to teach us this morning is how does our faith in God's kingdom affect our interaction with man's kingdoms? Anybody else uh, working through that on a daily basis? How does my life as a citizen of heaven impact my life as a citizen in America? If you're with me, follow along. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Drew, I know you're a hunter. You would like that word trap there. It's the only place in the New Testament. The, the Greek word has the idea of catching someone by actually fishing or hunting for them. It's, it's very picturesque. They're, they're trying to, to trap Jesus. Why? Well, last week, if you remember, he had put them to shame. They, they asked him a question about where he got his authority, and he threw a question back and said, John the Baptist's authority, where's it from? And he got them in a pickle where they couldn't answer. So in front of the people who looked to them as the religious leaders responsible for answering such questions, you remember what they said out loud? We don't know. <laughs> You t they probably walked away from there furious, totally discredited in front of the people. So now it's time for revenge. Let's try again. They sent the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. This is an interesting combo package here. What do we know about the Pharisees? Like They, they really believed in being separate from the, the world. They at least aimed or would say they aimed to, to follow the scriptures the Herodians, are they of the same mindset? No, they support Herods. Herods were not known for their, their morals of anything. They would be on the national inquirer of their day for all the in-house murders and immorality that went on. Okay, but here they are together. Why? Because they have the common enemy of Jesus Christ. His teaching and his life threatened both of their groups. William Hendrickson said, this is a strange coalition between the sanctimonious and the sacrilegious coming to trap Jesus. Verse 14, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, let me ask you, did they ask that out of a worshipful, reverential heart that truly meant those things in an honoring way? No. They, they, 
No, they didn't. They, they were all true. What are they doing? They're putting butter on the toast, flattery. Now, Jesus doesn't cave to that kind of stuff. We need to be aware of it in our lives. They're hoping they'll get him to stay, say something maybe so bold. Yeah, you don't care who's listening. Maybe even you'll speak against Caesar, and then you'll get in real trouble here. That's what they were after. They wanted to trap him. Okay, so what's their little trap? They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the tax in that day that they're talking about was a poll tax that had begun in 6 A.D., it went right into the imperial treasury, which the Greek word is fiscus for that treasury. Any of you who know finances know the fiscal year. That's where we get that idea. Once a year, every male would have to pay that tax to Rome. It was like a day's wages. And that was a topic of quite a bit of controversy. On the one side, you had people that wanted nothing to do with that tax. You remember in Acts chapter 5, the religious leaders talked about revolutionaries that came before Jesus? One of them was a man named Judas of Galilee, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 5. This revolutionary said this, historians tell us, taxation is no better than downright slavery. That's how they felt about it. We don't, we don't pay taxes to Rome. There was a group of people called the Zealots, who agreed with that. We don't want to follow this occupying secular power. We want to revolt. In fact, if you remember, Jesus had one of those in his own group of disciples, Simon. So they're thinking, hey, 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 if we can get him to say yes, pay the, the taxes to Caesar, all these revolutionaries are going to come against him, right? But what if he says to pay it? Then you got the more religiously minded folks like the Pharisees who, while they usually did pay it. They were very opposed to that idea as well. If, 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 if he had said, go ahead, or excuse me, if he said, don't pay it, you get the other folks that think you should and did pay it against you. You're going against who? Caesar. Caesar. And that, that could get him in real trouble in their mind. So here's this trap. But knowing their hypocrisy, verse 15, he knows you, you can't fool Jesus. You can't fool him. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Now, I want to do this this morning. This was a visual, so we're going to have a visual. Somebody bring me a quarter. So that's what he did. He said, bring me this coin. And they brought one. Or, or a debit card. Anybody got a coin? <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Dawn. Right on. <laughs> so someone in that crowd pull, pulled a coin out of their pouch or pocket or wherever and, and brought it to them. Now, what did this coin have on it, this, this denarius? We said it was about a day's wages. They had heads and tails just like we did. It was a little silver coin on the head side. It was the image of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription said something along the lines of son of the divine, divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar is the son of divinity, the son of God. Okay, now the backside, the tail side had a woman. 
many believe it was Tiberius Caesar's mother, and it had an inscription that said high priest, which also applied to the emperor. So he's son of God and high priest. You can begin to understand why more religiously minded Jews could be offended by this, but what did Jesus do to kind of poke back at this trap? Someone in the crowd brought him one of these. Oh, it's interesting. You're so offended by that, and yet you have it in your pocket. In fact, you brought it into the temple today. You use it throughout your regular life. Many believe that's the subtext of why Jesus had one of them then bring it. Ralph Earl put it this way. He's, why are you carting Caesar's picture around in your pocket if you hate him so? They didn't hate him enough not to, not to spend it, not to use it, right? So he goes on to say to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Let's start with the render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. If you enjoy the benefits of your Roman government, which had created roads throughout the empire, had created peace for the most part, though there were instances of oppression, order for the most part, if you enjoy those things, if you enjoy spending the money, there's a responsibility that comes with that to pay your taxes. And if you're asking, does that still apply today? Yes. Romans 13, 7 talks about us owing taxes to those in authority over us. Read 1 through 7 if you want a fuller, more full picture. But he doesn't stop there. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So Caesar's image was on the denarius. To God the things that are God's. Where do we find God's image? In creation, every human being is created in the image of God. Go back to Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we owe taxes to Caesar, but what do we owe God? Everything, everything that you are, everything that I am, because his image is upon us. And they marveled at him. No wonder. He, he did it again. He did it again, because who's going to argue with that? God's kingdom and man's kingdom. I want to talk about it a little bit. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. How does God's kingdom impact the way I operate in man's kingdom? Well, let me throw out a couple thoughts. If you're of the mindset that the Christian faith should be something private only and not have any impact in the world or politics around us, I want to ask you a couple questions. How do you explain the fact that God put Joseph in a position in Egypt where he was number two in the government of that land? How do you explain Daniel, who was raised high in the echelon of Babylonian authority, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we are to keep our faith private and not have any interaction with the, the governments of this world? 
But as you look at both of those men, when they interacted with government, I, I see something in common. And I'd encourage you to read it, Genesis 37 to 50, Daniel especially 1 through 6. When you look at both of those men, their faith in God and his kingdom shaped the way they operated in man's kingdom. Their faith in God and his kingdom was foundational to how they operated down here. Let's bring it to 2021 in America. I don't believe in a private faith that should have no impact in the world around us. I, I think we should take advantage of the privilege we have to be involved, even in the political process, as believers, to shine the light of truth out there. But if we are to follow in the footsteps of the Josephs and the Daniels, I want to throw a couple things out there. Scripture ought to affect and drive the way we, we view the stars and the stripes, okay? Let me start there. Knowing the, the king of kings ought to drive the way we talk about and interact with Congress. Persistent prayer ought to lay underneath the way we get involved in our political process. Our view of the Prince of Peace ought to affect the way we live under our current president. And last but not least, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, ought to affect the way we live underneath our earthly government. Their faith in God shaped the way they interacted. Their faith in God was first. Sometimes we get that wrong. Who remembers Will Rogers? He's an American cowboy and humorist, and I was reading a book this week that had a chapter title that caught my eye. It said, Will Rogers never met a church he didn't like. <laughs> what's, what's he saying here? Well, he, he said this one time. He said, a preacher can't save anybody nowadays. He's too busy saving the nation. He can't monkey with individual salvation. In the old days, those fellows read their Bibles. Now they read the congressional record. Ouch. Ouch. Now, again, I said earlier, we ought to be involved, but if it ever gets to that point where we're so involved in politics that we've left Jesus and the Bible behind, we are way off base. We are way off base. They say, well, how, how do I live that out in this world? If it's not private... I'm called here as a light to speak truth and grace. Let me give you a couple principles. Number one, the love principle. Do you know what our Savior said about our enemies? Love your enemies. So anytime we speak truth into this dark world, which we should, when we see our nation veering off away from God's ways, we need to ask ourselves that question. Am I doing this with a heart of love for those I speak to? That's the first one. The, the second test, the, the plank test. I was talking about offense between two brothers, but I think it applies here too. What did Jesus say? If, if you're going to call out sin in someone else's life, that speck in their eye, he doesn't say don't do it, but first make sure you're aware of the plank in your own eye, right? So as we speak truth into our culture, are we people who are willing to speak it after we've done the plank test? Lord, show me 
where I fall short. Anybody heard of G.K. Chesterton? Wonderful preacher, teacher. Somebody sent a survey once to a bunch of preachers and asked the question, what is wrong with the world today? He sent probably the shortest answer back. He said, dear so-and-so, I am what's wrong with the world today. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) What was he admitting that all of us in our sin contribute to the the wrong in the world? We got to look at ourselves first. and, And maybe this one's even more challenging in today's climate. Be an equal opportunity truth teller who will not only speak truth to the other party, but to our own party as well. When our own party veers away from God's principles, whatever party you're in, if you're a Christian, you're in Jesus' party first and foremost. I want to look at the plank in my own eye and the plank in my own party. Number three, the primary intention test. When we speak truth into a dark world, what is the primary reason we ought to do so to call out sin? Why are we still here? Go into all the world and make disciples. The primary motive for the Christian to call out sin is a desire to introduce people to the Savior that you and I need and they need as well. So yes, be involved. Yes, speak truth. But do the love test. Do the plank test. Do the primary intention test as we do. This also puts checks and balances on Caesar and every governmental authority. What Jesus said here is, yeah, give Caesar the tax, but you give God everything. What's that mean? Caesar is not Lord. That that seat is taken. That seat is taken. How does that play out in this world? We obey Caesar unless Caesar commands us to go against God's word. Acts chapter 5, you remember when the religious authorities told Peter and the guys to stop talking about Jesus. What did he say? We must obey God rather than men. Correct? Think about Daniel. Did he eat the king's meat? He did not because he knew that was against God's law at that time. You obey Caesar until Caesar tells you to break God's law. Because guess what? Only one kingdom is going to last forever. You think about Daniel's vision, and I'd encourage you to read Daniel again. The statue that represented many nations over time. And at the end, you remember what happened? A stone flew from the sky and crushed it to smithereens. That stone is God's kingdom, a stone that will last forever. Jesus is the cornerstone that we talked about last week. So however you're involved in the politics of this world, and I hope you're out there shining your light, using your privileges, I think we do well to keep in mind the the words of Martin Luther, the great reformer. He wrote, The church of the New Testament did not attempt to save its existence by making a concord with Nero and Domitian and Decius in their great persecution or by stirring up a revolution against these tyrants, or by making an alliance with the Persian Empire, but simply confessing the truth of the gospel and building up a truly confessing church 
whose members were prepared to die for their faith. Read Acts. Read Acts. Now we get into the second question. I told you there was a lot here, but I hope you agree with me. It's so worth it. This is our Lord and Savior speaking. I believe the second question is related to the first because as we look at a group of people called the Sadducees, we're going to see the relation between belief in God's kingdom or lack of belief in God's kingdom and how it impacts our life in this world. Verse 18 says, Sadducees came to him. Now, Some of you might be saying, hey, I've heard about the Pharisees, but who are these Sadducee guys? Well, that'd be normal because the Pharisees come up over 100 times in Scripture they were the local dudes usually at the synagogue. They were generally popular with the Jews. There were a lot of them. The Sadducees were usually centered in Jerusalem. They were fewer in number, but they were powerful. They, they were wealthy, largely because they compromised with the world around them. They were wealthy and thirsty for this world's power. They loved pagan art, architecture, athletics, which would have driven the Pharisees nuts. They compromised with the world for their wealth and power. The next phrase, I believe, may be a big part of why. Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. I'm telling you, if you don't believe in an afterlife or you have a weak belief in the afterlife, then it's going to affect the way you live in this world because you think this is all there is. And Paul even said, if there is no resurrection, you might as well go get it for you. But if there is a resurrection, it changes everything. If there is an afterlife, it changes everything about how we live in this life. They didn't believe in a resurrection. I've even heard some say, they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> we'll move quickly on from that into more meaningful things. Not only did they not believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels. Okay? We find that out in the book of Acts. And the Pharisees and them often fought about these things. Let's go on. These guys who don't believe in the resurrection says they asked them a question. Saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So far, they're good. This was in Deuteronomy. They're right. This was a process in Israel. Each family line had property, and if the guy died, needed to keep that in his family line, his brother would step in have a child with the, the woman, Lord willing, so that child could carry on the man's property. It's in Deuteronomy. Here's where they, they begin to go into their story. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, this story bothers me for a couple reasons. Any of you remember the, the story problems in math class? It, it, 
I read it, and it, it takes me back to those doggone story problems, and I hated those. You get lost in it. Do you give those to your students at Yavapai? Oh. Bill does that at Yavapai. We believe in confession and repentance here, Bill. <laughs> I hate story problems, but I'm also skeptical about this story because many believe, though, though you can't actually prove it, it may have been a real situation, but it's just a little too unlikely to be real. Even though in Matthew they say it's, it's someone among us, most believe this is a story they made up to, to make fun of people who believe in the resurrection. Maybe they even used it against the Pharisees who did. Oh, you believe in the resurrection? I got a pickle for you. Who, <laughs> whose wife is she going to be? I mean, you look at the logistics of it seven times. Like, what was this woman? Some kind of serial killer? Like, seriously, when, if you're the fourth or fifth guy at least, don't you start to think twice about, like, marrying this gal? Like, maybe I'll leave the country. I don't care. <laughs> Whatever the case, if it's real or not, they're not doing it to find out really who she's going to be married to in heaven. They're doing it to mock the idea that Jesus and his followers taught about resurrection. Jesus said himself even said, I am the resurrection in the life. They're trying to make it look ridiculous. Verse 24, Jesus cuts to it. He said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They did not know the scriptures and they did not know the power of God, which kept them from the truth on the resurrection. Let's talk about the, the scripture part. Did you know that they only viewed the five books of Moses in the Old Testament as God's word? They viewed it high above the rest of the Old Testament. Because of that, they missed later passages that are clear, at least in Old Testament terms, about resurrection. Passages like Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Daniel 12, too, is more to the point. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They missed a lot of that partially because they would not receive God's revelation in that later part of the Old Testament as his word. And I think about that today. We have got the whole counsel of God's word. Are we people who know the scriptures? And, and I think about them like they zeroed in on those first five books. Today, what's the common temptation? Well, I'm only going to zero in on the New Testament. Guess what? That other 75% of the book is God's word as well. That's why Paul talks about the whole counsel of God. If you want to know God, know his truth, we got to be people who know scripture, which they did not. They also did not know the power of God. Because when they rise from the dead, Jesus says to them, they neither marry 
nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, the problem was not with Scripture. It was with their silly assumption that things are going to be just like they are now. The idea here is that, look, if God is powerful to make a resurrection in an afterlife, we can trust that he's powerful enough to fix it in a way that makes sense, okay? But their silly assumption kept them from getting there. And I think about the assumptions we come with sometimes, sometimes the doubts. Is there such a thing as legitimate doubt searching for truth? Yes. How many of us have been there, are there? That's just part of the journey, okay? But you're legitimately seeking for truth. There's another kind of situation where we're not even willing to examine our own assumptions. See, the, the, the things they believed in didn't believe in kept them from seeing the truth. And I think about that when we have doubts. Like, why do we elevate our doubts about God's word to almost divine status? And when we have them, we put God's word down here and our doubts up here. How, how long have your doubts been around? How long have mine? How long has God's word been around? Of course, there's one sense in which it's eternal. It has always been his word, but even among men, as he poured it into the human race, it's been millennia. How many lives have been transformed? How many nations how many people have wrestled with the same questions you have and I have and found the truth in God's word? The doubts are part of the journey, but let's not exalt them above God's word. Let's bring them to God's word. And as Paul says, take every thought captive to Christ. Grab it by the neck and say, you bow before the truth of God in his word. It's a choice you can make. In faith, instead of tearing down scripture, let's tear down some strongholds in our lives that are keeping us from receiving God's truth. Their assumption kept them from seeing it. So he says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Problem solved. But are like angels in heaven. Now this verse has created all kinds of wrong belief that someday... You and I are going to be angels in heaven. And I hate to burst your bubble. If you love It's a Wonderful Life like, like we do and you're hoping to be Clarence someday, like trying to earn your wings, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He doesn't say we're going to be angels. He says we're going to be like angels. And in this context, what were they talking about? Marriage. Angels do not procreate. In the eternal state of resurrection, humans will no longer need to procreate because guess what? Our bodies are immortal, okay? We'll be like angels, not angels. But besides that, many believe that while, while marriage in this life, especially if you're blessed with a wonderful spouse like I am, it, there's a joy that comes with that in this life. But listen... When we see Jesus face to face, when we see God face to face, our deepest needs are going to be met in a way nothing in this world, not even marriage, can provide. Can, can you imagine what that's going to be like? David Guthrie said the best marriages are mere preparations for what awaits us on the other side. C.S. Lewis says God will look to every soul like its first love, because he is 
his first love. They didn't understand the scriptures. They didn't understand the power of God. But I like what one man said here. He said, the real trouble was that the Sadducees did not have the consciousness of a living presence within them. Their religion consisted of the meaningless performance of a lifeless ritual. To one who has experienced the resurrection power in his own life, there is no question as to the reality of the resurrection. Now, I know we hear that word experience and some of us get nervous, right? Like we all, if you have a biblical view, you know experience should not drive the train. All experience needs to be checked against God's word. But I want to tell you as a believer in Jesus Christ, you should not be afraid of experiencing the power of the risen Lord in your life. Have you experienced his presence in your life? I can think of moments in our lives where we have. Carolyn shared this week, and you've heard some of it before, so I'll be brief. After a painful breakup, even though she accepted Jesus as her Savior as a little girl, it was as a teenager after that painful breakup where God spoke to her in a way that let him know, I'm here for you, I love you. And it became more than intellectual. His presence carried her through a painful time. See, knowing Jesus is not like memorizing the periodic table in biology class. There is an intellectual part of it, but there's this relationship. John Voigt, anybody see the interview with him this week? How God encountered him in his power. He was at a point earlier in his life. He's the actor in Transformers, National Treasure. You may know him from other movies. Early in his life, he fell down in his house one day. Family was going through some trials, some other things going on in his acting career. And he just fell down on the floor and said, it is so difficult. Maybe you're there today. It is so difficult. He was at his wit's end. And he said, God spoke to him. Not audibly, but what, what he received was it's supposed to be difficult. <laughs> now, let me ask you, does that resonate with Scripture? I, I think about what Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But he said when he heard that, it wasn't in like some kind of judgmental way, like it's supposed to be difficult, shut up. It, he became aware that there was someone out there who loved him and was with him. And he said, from that day on, he has walked in the fear of the Lord, not wanting to let down this God who spoke to him. I don't know if he's come full circle to Christ. Maybe you do or not. But I believe, very likely, God encountered him in the middle of his brokenness. We've been there in situations in our own life. Cancer, numbness and fear like you wouldn't believe. And people start praying in, in the hug of God, though it's not physical, brought such peace even before we knew how bad it was, financial difficulties between health insurances, his peace. Do you know the power of the risen Lord in your experience? John Wesley, how many of you have heard of him? Great evangelist in church history. Did you know he went through a point in his life of great discouragement himself? He had been ordained as an Anglican minister he came to America to preach and, and do revivals, and he faced great discouragement because he couldn't overcome the sin in his own life, and he wasn't seeing much fruit. And he came back home, and he went to a meeting where someone 
was reading Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the epistle of Romans. In John Wesley's own words, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. He realized he had never had a personal encounter with Christ, though he had grown up in it and all around it. And from that point forward, his life changed. He had the joy and strength to move forward, overcome his sin, and be used by God. He understood the power of God in the risen Lord in that moment. Jesus closes with them. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Now you read that and you're like, why didn't he say Exodus chapter 3? Well, because if you know your church history, those chapter numbers and verses were added much later. Check it out. Give it a Google. This is how they referred to the scriptures. In the book of Moses, the passage about the bush. Have you not read how God spoke to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? You say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? No, he said, I am. Because their souls still lived and held on to the hope of a future resurrection of their bodies. Jesus closes, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This was the knockout punch because he used one of the books that they did see as authoritative and showed them even there, he is the God of the living. Now, as you think about knowing the scriptures, you think about knowing the power of God, I want to share something with you. Maybe you heard, like, what was it in the, the preface of Martin Luther that that? God used to touch John Wesley's life. We don't have to guess. Wesley tells us, listen to these words just briefly. See if it does not encourage you in your own walk of faith. Martin Luther wrote, Faith is a divine work in us which transforms us, gives us a new birth out of God, slays the old Adam, makes us altogether different men in heart, affection, mind, and all powers, and brings with it the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, energetic, active, mighty thing, this faith. It cannot but do good. There is no question asked whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, the works have been done, and there is a continuous doing of them. But any person not doing such works is without faith. He is groping in the dark, looking for faith and good works, and knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Although he indulges in a lot of twaddle and nonsense concerning faith and good works. Faith is a living, daring confidence in the grace of God of such assurance that it would risk a thousand deaths. This confidence and knowledge of divine grace makes a person happy, bold, and full of gladness in his relation to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit is doing this in the believer. does not mean there are not struggles. Martin Luther knew his share of them. 
It means in Christ we have the strength and faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to navigate this walk, to live among man's kingdoms in a way that reflects our ultimate belief in God's kingdom.